I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, I'm excited to get to dance with this next guest. Before I hit record, we were talking about dialogue and dance and handing handing it off to each other and just sort of seeing where the anecdotes and the thoughts from each other opens up space and how we can hand it back and forth. And I look forward to interviews like this a lot. And as I was explaining to him, I'll introduce him in a minute. I also really enjoy using this podcast as a platform to elevate and hold space for people who really deserve to have their opinions, their thoughts put forth in the world. So sometimes I'll do an interview where I feel like my job is to really just hold the space, be on mute an awful lot and let them talk. But today is going to be a bit different. So I always say this because I am always looking forward genuinely to every single guest I talk to. But I'm really looking forward to talking to Philip Clayton and introducing him. We met a few weeks ago, actually, in a workshop we were in together with an, out, an organization called Reboot the Future, with whom he works from his own organization. So Philip works at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and science. You might not have expected that last word. He focuses on the fundamental questions that arise within each of these fields and their intersections and has increasingly focused on the intersection of climate science, ethics, religion, social philosophy, and eco-theology is what we're calling it, which I love. It kind of says it all. He holds the Ingram Chair, Ingram, however you say that, at Claremont School of Theology, where he directs the PhD program in comparative theologies and philosophies, as well as being affiliated faculty at Claremont Graduate University. A graduate of Yale, he's also taught at Williams College, California State University, the University of Munich in Germany, Cambridge, and Harvard. So just a list of, you know, some local junior colleges. He's published two dozen books and 350 articles. And most relevant to our chat today, Philip is president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization, which is a great name, by the way, which works internationally to support multi-sector innovations toward a sustainable society. What that means is they support collaborations between governments, businesses, policy experts, and NGOs to work on the big, complex, crunchy, pressing issues we're all facing, like climate change and ecosystem decline and species extinction. You know, again, just some little things. He's also president of the Institute for the Postmodern Development of China, which works with universities and government officials to promote the concept of ecological civilization through conferences, publications, educational projects, and eco-villages. And obviously, in this very geopolitically connected world that we live in, well, geopolitically and otherwise, China is a big topic. <laughs> How do we work with China? How are we impacted by China? So that's a really interesting part of his experience. And as I said, we recently met at an online workshop. It was focused on deep time. And if you don't know what deep time means, Google it. It might not tell you what it means, but it'll get you thinking. But it was run by, I mentioned, a fantastic organization called Reboot the Future, with whom the Institute for Ecological Civilization has partnered to hold a series of private and public conversations aimed at engaging leaders in intimate, transformational conversations to support a shift to a compassionate and sustainable world. So as I'm more or less saying at the beginning of every episode in season three of The Discomfort Practice... 
Philip and I are having this conversation today because we're both engaged in proactively creating discomfort and seeking to change the world as a result. Because obviously with change comes discomfort. So we need to know how to be with discomfort. We need to figure out what we reach for in discomfort and how we can maybe reach for something different or simply be still, simply be in thought, simply be rather than always have to do. But it's time for big, deep and uncomfortable change. We know this as we explore and establish new ways of thinking, new ways of being and acting to create a world in which we can all truly thrive. I always start with a big introduction in part to make my guests potentially uncomfortable. So we're on the same page, but also to open them up as human beings because everyone's a human. I don't care who they are, what kind of leader they are, what kind of experience they have. So let's connect as humans and let's get uncomfortable together, Philip. Thanks, Betsy, for that introduction. I'm looking forward to find out what spaces, including uncomfortable spaces, the next minute lead us to. And as a note to listeners, you might hear a bit of street noise. I've mentioned this before, but I've moved where I record in my home in Barcelona, Spain, to my home office. And they love scooters here. And all of my office, my office and my bedrooms are on the street side of the building. So you might hear some, you know, exotic street noise, some sirens, some shouting in Spanish, whatever. So it's all just part of the flavor. Bear with me. But I'm going to keep myself off mute the whole time. I don't want to work too much to minimize the noise. So let's let this be a bit real lifey as we just flow through this conversation. So Philip, I already sent you a little brief ahead of this. And you know what I want to focus on, which is exactly what you do, which is science, faith, and environmentalism. Because those three things might not necessarily seem obvious to some people. And obviously, I come from a very, very conservative Christian American family in the background. And my parents would be horrified to be called environmentalists as people of faith. So I'm really interested to hear how these things intersect in your experience and how you have conversations with people like that. We've touched on it a bit. But first over to you. First question, always. What's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Yeah, I love your opening questions and hearing how people have struggled with them on various podcasts. The year was 2008. I had just been named chair at a nationally or internationally famous school, divinity school or, or seminary, Claremont School of Theology, and inherited the Ingram chair, which the famous original faculty member, Dr. John Cobb, had first held. I'd set up a series with some extra funding called Faith and the Future of the Planet. And that mm. was really your theme right there, bringing together the, the faith traditions of the world and, and our environmental situation. And the fifth thinker in was Dr. Cobb himself, my mm. predecessor in the chair and the one who had held this famous conference in 1971 with the title, Is It Too Late? Wow. So he was so prescient that he realized in 71, we already had to ask that question 50 years ago, exactly 50 years ago, is it too late? And he was talking, I was listening, he's a, an amazing thinker, and he got to this point where he started talking about the consequences of climate change and started saying things that had never sunk into me before. And he said, you know, the changes will be so great that we may see the collapse of economic structures, the collapse of social structures and mass numbers of people dying. And that had never sunk through. I was proud of my, ch my chair, I was proud of my academic books. And now suddenly I heard it for the first time. It's a Southern gentleman with a very polite approach and mm -hmm. gentle voice. And somehow that allowed me to hear it. And I said, raise my hand. It's right in the middle of the talk. I said, John, are, you know, are we talking, is this really true? Are we talking about, you know, millions of deaths from this? And there's this sort of long silence in the auditorium. And he said, we're talking about hundreds of millions 
if not billions of people dying. And I don't remember anything else of what he said, but I walked out and walked through the dark back to my house that night and realized everything that I've built up and all the things I'm proud about don't matter at all in comparison to that. That was the Rubicon for me, that moment where I just no longer could continue to do the things that were ego gratifying and that I'd been trained to do, but I needed to just completely change my focus. Wow. That, that definitely qualifies for your uncomfortable moment. For sure. And also 1971, he was saying things like that in 1971. And here we are 40 something years later, finally realizing, but still not, I would say, doing enough systemically, but our hand is being forced, I suppose. But it's kind of hard not to feel a bit handmaid's tale-ish here and angry that we saw this coming. Somebody saw this coming and nobody was listening or preparing for it. So actually, I'd like to just sort of dive right into then what led you to help set up Ecosiv. And obviously, you're one of the co-founders and the president, because I'm going to just read out what your core belief is, because it's a really, really interesting institute. So the core belief of the Institute for Ecological Civilization is the present trajectory of life on this planet is unsustainable, and the underlying causes of our environmental crisis are inseparable from our social and economic systems, which, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> the massive inequality between the rich and the poor is not separate from our ecosystems of unlimited growth, the depletion of natural resources, the extinction of species, or global warming. Social and environmental movements require an orientation that is neither too narrow and short-term, nor too abstract and long-term to offer concrete guidance. Formulating the requirements for the flourishing of life in all its forms, an ecological civilization will provide the roadmap that leaders need and will ground a hope that stimulates the necessary reforms. Oh man, that's only a paragraph long, but there's so much in there. You talk about hope and concrete and not making it too abstract, but also not making it too micro that it doesn't actually create the change, but Whew, unpack that. Okay, first of all, what led to the setting up of, we'll call it Ecosiv, just for clarity and brevity here? Mm -hmm. To answer this honestly, I should stay with the discomfort theme that you set at the opening and say that the practice that I followed in those weeks and months and actually a year and a half after that moment with John Cobb was not to run away from it. It's mm -hmm. so easy to suppress that nagging voice that says you need to do something different. And there is a, a practice, I'll call it a spiritual practice of being able to sit with the discomfort. Buddhists talk about sitting with something and, and I, I think of it as a form of really of Buddhist meditation to sit mm -hmm. with that discomfort. And rather than suppressing it, which is what humans are so good at or transferring it to something else, to view it as the most important element in your daily life. When it arises again with its, its nagging, worrying feeling to say, this is important. This mm -hmm. is more important than the conversation I'm in the middle of or the paper I'm writing for publication. And so I sat with that for a year and a half. And one day John Cobb called me into his apartment and said, I want to take everything I have and do a global conference on the environmental crisis, but I want it to be positively oriented. Hmm. He said, I want to call it seizing an alternative toward an ecological civilization. I've asked my four children who are grown if I can give away the inheritance to fund this conference. Mm -hmm. He ended up pulling a million dollars together from various sources. And he said, would you work with me? It's five years away, but it's going to be massive. Would you yeah. devote a bunch of time for the next five years to make this happen? Seizing an alternative toward an ecological civilization. And I said, yes. 
that was really the moment in 2010 when when Ecosil was born. Mm. Um, we skipping over the prep in 2015 in the summer, the same summer when the, the Pope's encyclical Laudato mm. Si came out, which if we get to that later, I, that's a for me an epic making document. Yeah. In that summer, we had 1,500 people from around the world, and we'd funded a number of people from poorer countries so that we really had representation. It wasn't just North Americans. Oh, it's so rare uh, and so needed. Yeah. We decided to do just a few plenary meetings in the evening. So, and for those, we had 2,000 people in. We took over the Claremont Colleges on the east side of Los Angeles, 2,000 people in the largest auditorium, and then for the rest, it was people in working groups, mm. 82 working groups, 12 major divisions of what a societal transformation, a global transformation would look like. We founded a publishing house and two nonprofits. Uh, we had the leading environmentalists from US, China, and India on stages. Wow. Um, it was just a massive organized movement building mm. meeting, not just you know people on stages. and. By the time that was over and, and the leadership met, we realized something was happening and we needed to just give everything to it. So mm -hmm. I agreed to, with a colleague, to build the Institute for Ecological Civilization or ecociv.org. And from that point, my abstract publications as a philosopher and theologian dropped and my activism in, in organizational leadership, uh, building collaborations around the world increased. And that's mm -hmm. now, that's the heart of my life. Wow, I feel like we could be like, okay, cool, job done, stop recording now. But it's interesting what you said about this is a movement. And having been involved in movements and in building movements, it's something that probably a lot of people don't, they haven't maybe experienced sort of what that magic is of the people coming together, people finding a shared passion, a shared direction, and then shared action. And just being witness to that is really incredible. I got chills as you were talking about this because I'm like, ah. Oh, it's almost about just getting out of the way and letting things flow and then being able to set up some structures to help it keep flowing, isn't it? I mean, what to you is the magic of a movement? How do they happen? Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of theorists who write about it. And oh, yeah. um, it's the one fact that I want to put on the table is we think of a movement as at least 51% of a society, but it turns out that it's much more like the spark that gets yeah. the fire going. And when a small, you, we used to say the low 20%, you know, there's a controversial but intriguing position out now that it can be as little as 3% of a society being yeah. deeply engaged is enough to begin like the avalanche, that first small snowball that starts heading down mountain. And then, you know, as we know, in the Alps, it can be a huge avalanche that then mm -hmm. follows. We've been seeing that for a long time. We've been seeing it in the United States since Rachel Carson, maybe mm -hmm. back since John Muir in the 1880s. Mm. But Silent Spring was an epic-making book and by that time in the 60s, there was the growing work. Club of Rome, which we, remains active to today, uh, did some crucial work in the early 1970s. And then religious groups began to notice more and more that they had a central role to play as indigenous peoples are keepers of ancient wisdom. So the religious traditions are also keepers of often book recorded ancient mm. wisdom. And to see that part, that was then you could see the snowball effect growing and growing. A movement is when you begin to recognize, you usually only recognize it in retrospect, where one of the really public appearances of the movement occurs. So when we had 400,000 people in the streets of New York City 
uh, September yeah. a few years ago, marching on the importance, the absolute centrality of responding to climate change, then it was hard, at least for Americans at that moment, to deny. And when you see the same thing happening in Madrid and Barcelona and mm -hmm. Rome and London and Berlin, then you begin to recognize, yes, we are talking about a global movement. Mm, and I, I've sort of come to the theory side of movement building late because I started early as an activist and community organizer and all of that in the U.S. and just sort of came to it through passion and then got an, ended up being good at it. So I kind of learned retrospectively all the theories. But my experience is absolutely aligned with that idea that it really only takes a small, truly engaged number to make a difference. And I find it interesting. There's been so much theorizing about it over the years that disagrees with that because I'm like, I know this to be absolutely true. You know, having a small number of truly committed people can truly change things. But then, of course, the beauty happens when it becomes big and public and visible and, you know, the kind of thing that gets a lot of headlines. And that's when you that's the tsunami, but not necessarily the movement. There's been a movement long before that that's probably been creating change. So, yeah, interesting perspective. I appreciated that. It brings an example up. Sometimes examples are clearer than the theory. You know, this as a community organizer. EcoCiv has been working with an area called well-being economics. So mm -hmm. what would economic systems look like when they're for the good of people and planet? We began working with a, a poor city in the Los Angeles area named Pomona, largely Hispanic, lack of affordable housing, huge social problems. And so we began with an approach working with under the leadership of the local people, community organizers among the grassroots groups, mostly Hispanic. And we also called it the grass tops. So the mm. city council, the mayor. Pomona declared itself a compassionate city, part nice. of the global compassionate cities movement. We came in with our little bit of funding to help support these dialogues. Our central partner is the Latino Roundtable. And with those conversations, it was like a moment of kindling. We just got the news last week that the mayor said, let's devote a million to $2 million to build worker-owned collaboratives that can help supply low-income housing to people. Wow. And it's like you say, what, we were less than 3% of the population of Pomona that was involved. How did it suddenly happen that the city as a whole decides to engage together in solving the problem? And that's that moment of magic. Yeah. It happens over and over again in, in organizing yeah. where you just see the pieces are there and nobody could predict that there was going to be this outcome. And then boom, there it is, all of it mm. in a moment. And you think, wow. That's amazing. It just comes from a recognition of types of power because there's network power, there's relational power, and then there's positional power. And I've always thought of my magic recipe for movement building is always bottom up and top down. Because yeah. if you have to start with just one, go bottom up, to be honest, because if you do it top down, it's just an imposition. And then it's not, you know, you run the risk of things like, well, astroturfing. People know that term. It's basically fake grassrootsing things. And it's a big risk for corporates and governments because it just looks like greenwash or purpose wash or whatever. But once you get that magic moment, I like that idea of a spark, a catalyst. You know, you, they sort of meet in the middle and that's where the combustion and the magic happens when the bottom up power meets the top down power and they decide to just go forward together. That's exciting. I didn't know about that. And I love global compassionate cities movement. I'm totally going to learn more about that and probably ask for an intro to a guest from it. But I think it's related to the Charter for Compassion, mm. which is one can find easily. It's a beautiful charter. It's on the internet. And I think that one will be interesting. Mm. 
But to anyone listening, I hope that what you're taking from this already is just the reality that you, other people, nobody's too small to make a difference because collectively, this is how the magic happens, you know, and it might be different styles, different flavors, different positions, which actually brings me to what I am dying to talk about, which is science and faith tend to be seen as very mutually exclusive. I don't know if you agree with that, probably a little bit. You wrote a piece called Religious Voices Count, the new openness to spiritual questions in the sciences. So it's like scientists tended to think religious people are just a bit thick <laughs> or simple or they believe in myths. And then religious people tend to view scientific people with suspicion and, you know, they kind of are missing the richness of spirituality. They're too guided by logic and, and there's not a lot of respect between the two sides quite often. So talk us through, what are you finding? What's shifting, if anything? Is there more of a place for the two to be alive and well in the same person, in the same community, in the same movement, science mm -hmm. and faith, the intersections. Yeah. Here we go. So this one is huge and you can <laughs> take us pretty much anywhere in the field. I've It's been the focus of most of my life. I think maybe the fun way into it would be more personal mm. um, because each person needs to locate where they stand along this continuum. You speak on the podcast about your own religious background and your movement away and each person needs to locate their particular location. Yeah. That would be my first principle because our paths are very different. So I was raised in an atheist family in Northern California, professor's son. My father hated religion with an incredible passion. Wow. Had written his PhD on the critique of religion. And my mother had been raised Christian science, which was for her a terribly fundamentalist controlling religion. Mm -hmm. And then both felt their liberation from religion was crucial. So I was raised, you know, as a complete relativist in the 60s. I, there was nothing I could do that they would say was wrong. And my conversion to Christianity in a dramatic conversion <laughs> to fundamentalist Christianity as a 14-year-old was oh, the wow. most shocking things my parents, it was the most damaging thing <laughs> I could possibly have done to them. In fact, I remember coming home from this retreat where I'd given my life to Christ and telling them that there was a single story of the world. Oh my Everything, God. you know, fit Adam and Eve and an apple and, you know, this whole process. And we were all then really screwed. We were sinful and there was no value in us. And then God sent his son and he got killed and bled. And that lets us now be oh, okay. And yeah. I'm going to heaven, but I'm really worried about you too. And oh my I remember God. My, my father was <laughs> just in shock. His eyes were, he just couldn't believe that his son would say these words. And oh. I remember my mother just tears coming out of her eyes and dropping mm. into her cereal bowl. Oh my God, our kids are Christian. What have we done wrong? I know, it yeah. was terrible. So I went to a conservative Christian college. My dad had gone to Stanford. And what happened was I realized that the biggest opponent to my conservative faith was science. Mm. So I wrote my senior thesis on science and religion and began to struggle with that and to find ways to harmonize. I was so fascinated by that that I then went on and did my PhD on that topic and written and spoken around the world on that, led uh, projects in every country and with every religion. In fact, it was that that led me into becoming a student of the world's religions because mm -hmm. I wanted to know how does each grapple with science? And you'll find that, for example, Christians and Muslims have the hardest time integrating with science. Mm -hmm. The ones who seem to be the easiest are Buddhists for reasons that we could talk about. The extra voice that may be the wisest one of all are the indigenous peoples of the world 
for whom indigenous life ways, so ways of being in the world, are the center of spirituality. Mm. And that can integrate with science particularly well. Mm, let's um, talk about actually, I'd love to hear about why. Why do some religions have an easier time aligning with science? And why, why do others find it so difficult? Because, you know, I'm getting my head around this. First of all, let me also say, it's so fascinating to hear that could have been the answer to the first question, that discomfort of becoming something that you hadn't been raised at all to be and trying to then find a way back to bring these parts of yourself together, right? Mm, I love that. Isn't that the core of discomfort, Betsy? Yeah. That there are parts of ourselves, things that have, whether they've come from the outside or their native growths, <laughs> native plants, yeah. um, that exist with each other only in cognitive dissonance and emotional mm -hmm. dissonance. dissonance. Mm -hmm. And the practice is to recognize that the different parts of our own ecosystem exist in some tension. And how do we act in a productive way so that we achieve unity out of disparate? Yeah, unity and integration. And we're all basically just seeking to be at peace and to feel whole and to feel aligned and to not exist in this cognitive dissonance where what we are and what we think and what we do don't align. Yeah, exactly. I see a lot of that in the work I'm doing. Well, you do too, I'm sure, with leaders and helping them to find their personal purpose and then their corporate purpose and align those things so that they don't have these very strangely separate identities and tracks they're on where home life is home life and work life is completely out of sync with their personal values. Mm -hmm. So, okay, let's go back to how... But, but can we stay with this? Because this, yeah, yeah. this is broader than the science religion, but your podcast is a brilliant frame for the global science religion debate. So mm -hmm. recent theory in rationality says the most rational person is the one who focuses most on counter arguments to her own positions. Mm. And at the psychological level, the inner level, the healthiest person is the one who's most aware of the discomforts, the dissonances, and makes those like the seed for growth. Yeah. So there's no person, almost no person, maybe the perfect saint could, but most people can't go through a single day without having said or done something that makes them uncomfortable or encountered a comment from another person that makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So what if I took my reflection on the day as the place where I look to the discomforts and ask, what did they have to teach me? What if I actually made that the guide to my personal and spiritual life? Mm. I was just teaching a corporate session today about giving and receiving feedback. And a lot of it was on sitting with any discomfort when you receive feedback you didn't ask for or don't agree with, or you don't like the person who gave it to you. Pause and see where the grains of truth are, because it's often the ouchy moments we want to reject straight away, that there's a real truth that nails something hard. And we don't want to be with that discomfort. So we just reject it out of hand. And we're like, well, pff, that person doesn't know me, or I don't like that person, or they don't have my best interests at heart, all of which might be true. But it's the ouchiest moments that are, that's where the juiciness is. That's where the lesson is. I totally agree. Mm. So now imagine that you're a scientist in London, and you have a Buddhist practice, and you feel the two are really integrated. You have a teacher who encourages you that all of your science, none of it needs to be negated, as Dalai Lama has also often said. You know, if science contradicts some part of Buddhism, I would reject that part, he said in his Beyond Religion book. Mm. And so then you have a teacher who comes in one day, and he's from Tibet, and he's describing Tibetan beliefs about reincarnation, the metaphysics of Tibetan Buddhism, and suddenly he starts feeling very uncomfortable because about half of what he hears contradicts mm. the scientific teaching. 
Now, what was a beautifully synthesized faith and science world is suddenly fallen into conflict. Mm. How is he going to make his particular way out of facing this new teaching that he's just bumped into? It's interesting because I think this is where we get a lot of, I'm trying to say it with respect, but some of the beliefs that I grew up with that I strongly disagree with now based on science, I'm just going to go ahead and say it like seven day creation, 10,000 years ago and all of that. So my parents are very creationist. I grew up going to workshops and seminars about creationism and how to argue with scientists about such things. But there isn't necessarily a pause with the discomfort. Actually, there definitely isn't a pause with the discomfort. There's just this sort of leap into tying it up in a neat, a nice, neat, tidy conclusion that suits the agenda, I guess you could say, but doesn't pause to be uncomfortable with the science of it. And people might disagree with me there. Please DM me about it. I would love to hear your thoughts and I would love to discuss further. But yeah, we just leap into well, patching up the gap in our cognitive dissonance rather than sitting in that space of discomfort, right? I remember a famous Princeton geologist who was also a conservative Christian decades ago who said, so I believe that the universe is a very small number of years old not 13.72 billion, which is our <laughs> standard number. And I said, how do you practice geology and publish papers on the millions and billions of years of geology on this planet? And he said, Monday through Friday, I am a scientist, but on Sunday, I'm a Christian. I hold two different views at different times. That makes me so uncomfortable because my <laughs> automatic consumption is, wow, that is a route to like, major dissociation from your life. How do you do that? And I guess that's just the path that he'd chosen to be at peace with the two sides. But then how, how do you see this integrating in the work in the world, in the work of scientists, in the work of people of faith who are aligned on things like there is an environmental crisis. What are we going to do about it? How are science and faith, have they come together more? Is there more space mm -hmm. in religion for science? Is there more space right. in science for faith? So if we take this framework that you and I have just been discussing as the way to approach this question of science and faith, then we're going to say that everybody faces conflicts, they formulate ways that you can tie the pieces together, and then they face a new conflict where it doesn't quite hold up, and then they patch it a little bit more, or they make a huge conversion, right? Mm -hmm. I leave my fundamentalist background and I move into a completely different worldview. Right, I change religions or whatever it is, but then I'm still involved in patching up little things in my new worldview. Right? Mm. If you take that person and you say, take all of us and say that the discomfort practice guides us as we manage the relationship between the worlds of our faith or spirituality and the worlds of our science and our surrounding world. Okay, And then you move to the environment. Here's where I think something special happens. When you move from fighting for the doctrines of a tradition so asking what are the highest levels of aspiration and action in the world that my religion calls me to, the whole thing changes. Mm. So now if I'm asking, we have a global crisis, bigger, I think, than any crisis humanity has faced before with the climate crisis. We need to coordinate across the globe in ways humanity has never succeeded in doing before. And you say, and you're a, a person for whom religion or spirituality is central. Then you ask not what are my doctrines, but what are the gifts that my religion offers me as ways of being in the world? Types of practice, both inner, like meditation, and external, like social ethics or what it might be. 
what are the resources? Mm -hmm. What are the strengths of my religious ecosystem mm. that I bring to the global ecosystem for the sake of the people on the planet? And at that point, then you find yourself having a contribution to make, whether it is a mindfulness practice and environmentalism, whether it's engaged Buddhism in Thailand, whether it's the long tradition of science within Jewish belief and practice observance, whether it is creation care in the Christian tradition, more conservative views or whatever. And that turns out to be a partnership where religious and non-religious people can join. I'll just tell one anecdote. Um, Peter Minowar was with us in 2009 in Melbourne at the World Parliament of Religions. Mm. In each of the last parliaments through Toronto, I've organized multiple sessions on science and faith and the environmental crisis. And so we had this Nobel Prize winner in medicine standing on the stage in front of 600 religious leaders from around the world. And he showed slides of the climate crisis and the urgent need for concrete change. And then at the end of the presentation, he was the opening speaker in a series of, of five speakers in this major hall. He walked to the front of the stage with no notes. He looked out over the audience and he said, I am not a religious person in any way. I have no faith to offer you. But since I won the Nobel Prize, I have been traveling the world to talk about the crisis of the climate and the need for change. He said, I beseech you. He reached out his arms and said, I beseech you as religious leaders to be allies. Religion changes hearts, minds, and actions maybe more powerfully than anything else in the world. My colleagues and I can bring you the facts, the predictions, and the statements of what needs to be done, but facts and figures don't change people's lives on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I beg you to join in forces as partners with us as scientists to use the appeals and the scriptures and the practices of your traditions to help people live differently in the world. Mm. We brought that half, these religious, there must have been 30 religions or more represented in that room. And Peter made this call to us to find a place of working together. And that's the heart, I think, of the answer for me. And what was the response to that from the leaders in the room? Each time at the World Parliament, we've, we've had people give standing ovations mm. and we've had expressions of commitment on the part of religious leaders. Just a few months ago, Pope Francis, the head of the Anglican Communion and the Green Patriarch of Constantinople joined to issue a single document, a historic first for the heads wow. of these three communions, that climate change is now the greatest challenge to the planet and its ecosystems. And that we, as the heads of these three traditions, pledge to work together to bring the resources of our traditions to aid in that global transformation. And that is millions, if not billions of people who are followers of those faiths. I guess that's rather than looking at the divides, I've sort of changed my mind about how I want to talk about this, which is, I mean, it's always a lot more productive and inspiring to talk about how we go forward together and how people can do that based on what they believe and where they are in their own relationship to religion or science, like you talked about at the beginning of our, our discussion today. So it is beautiful to hear that, that it's about just how can you be an ally? Because I've mentioned in previous episodes when I've talked about oh, my poor parents, I don't think they even know I have a podcast, but I, I referenced them a lot. Bless them. But they are very environmentally responsible in their behaviors because they believe that they're stewards of God's creation. And it's really beautiful. Well, it's a beautiful way of living 
their faith. I really admire about, you know, this about them. And I don't care why they do it. It really honestly doesn't bother me why they do it. It's we are completely aligned in our behaviors. I wish the people whose behaviors I were trying to influence in environmental programs had the kind of environmental care that my parents in Wyoming have. So how do you then bring together a movement where people think they believe different, well, they do believe very different things about, you know, the origins of the universe, the destiny of each human individually or collectively, whether or not, you know, we have a soul, whether or not we're reincarnated, coming from very different potential motivators. How do you get global religions aligned as a movement that actually then does something? It's not just leaders standing in a room giving a standing ovation to a Nobel Prize winner. How do you actually make this work in reality in practical terms that create real change? Mm -hmm. We look for common themes across the religious traditions. I teach a class on compassion, justice, and transformation across the world's traditions. The easiest is compassion. Uh, because you find the golden rule expressed in every tradition. You know, it's in Hebrew scriptures, it's in Christian New Testament, it's in the Hadith of the Prophet, peace be upon him, of Islam, and it's in the uh, Eastern traditions as well, as well as in the most ancient oral traditions of the indigenous peoples. This is, by the way, the core premise of RebootTheFuture.org, mm -hmm. our partners in the work that we're doing at, at COP26 and elsewhere. And it's something that the founder of Reboot, Kim Pullman, has made the center of, of her own work. So when you speak of compassion and show that it involves compassion for all living things, which for the Buddhist is the core of a compassion meditation, is yeah. to meditate for the thriving of all sentient beings. But similar motifs are present in the other traditions as well. Mm -hmm. Then you have an obvious common ground. Justice is a little bit more complicated. Justice is not a major theme in Hindu traditions, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's a, I'm avoiding the nerdy side here. But yeah, there's, no, but I, I, I totally understand that because I've spent some time in India and there is just a very different approach to life there. And, you know, do you have social programs for outcasts? Because if you believe that they're in that position because they're just living out their karma in this life and better luck next time, it's a harder sell. But at the yeah. same time, there are definitely climate allies in the Hindu faith among yeah. Hindu leaders. So it's interesting so, because, yeah, go ahead. So Ecosip took that challenge on. And in 2018, we agreed to do the three-hour plenary of the justice track of the World Parliament. So we, for three hours, we'd worked for a year and a half on it. And we brought in speakers from around the world and from multiple traditions on the stage for music and arts and panels and speakers and dance. And, you know, if you've been to a world parliament, you know that it's a great show. And we were actually able to find for topic after topic, leading figures from each of the world's traditions mm. who brought a particular creative perspective to the achieving of justice in multiple areas. And for us, climate justice was, and I think is, the number one overarching justice issue for the mm. planet as a whole. Talk about climate justice, because a lot of people probably won't be familiar with that term. Yeah. So you are an African-American and you live in, let's say, south side of Chicago, and you find that your children are getting sick. They have uh, persistent coughs. As an intelligent person who's got some gifts of listening and researching, you begin to look around and you, you find out that your community was built next to a dumping site mm. of toxic chemicals that industry had left 50 years ago and that 
its existence had been denied and covered up over and over and over again. And you begin to realize that you're living in an unsafe place, that the cancer rate is 163 times higher in your neighborhood than it is in the more wealthy neighborhoods just five miles to your west. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that there's a national network of people looking at cases of environmental injustice across the United States. And again and again, poor communities are either given water with lead poisoning or water infected by fracking, which makes it toxic, or home sites, or on and on. And -hmm. then you begin to study it globally, and you find out that the worst effects of climate are coming to those who have least caused it and who have the least ability to protect themselves from it. So eco-justice turns out to be one of the fundamental questions. Never in the history of our species have we had a global challenge, a global crisis, where those who caused it are scot-free and those who suffer the most didn't cause it. Yeah. The carbon footprint of an average person in Haiti is one. <laughs> they make what for most of the West is impossible to only take their share of their carbon footprint for the planet. And they bear an increasingly unlivable island because the average carbon footprint of a North American is 37. Mm -hmm. Meaning you would need the equivalent of 37 Earths to live the way you live sustainably, basically. For everybody to live the way you live. I just want people to pause and get uncomfortable with this. And I... Oh, because I live in this all the time, like you do. I remember not too long ago, might have been a month or two ago, I literally had a nightmare that Earth Overshoot Day, which is the day every year in which we've already used all the resources available to us and we're borrowing from the future from that day on. I had a nightmare that Earth Overshoot Day was happening in like April. And it's getting faster and faster, earlier and earlier in the year. But these are the kinds of things that haunt my dreams. And actually, my point here is... And I was saying this to a friend not long ago. Of course, I want to have a nice life. I want to have a comfortable life. So do we all. But we all need to be willing to get less comfortable in order to get serious about this. Because I was talking to a friend who is, you know, she has an eco startup and she's super aware, as are we all, but we're not uncomfortable enough. We have to be willing to sit with the discomfort of that and to then do something about it and to be willing to live less comfortably to actually address what you're talking about, because we bear a lot of responsibility and we bear very few of the consequences for mm. what's going on right now and will continue to escalate. And then, of course, it has a knock-on effect on everything. I mean, I know that there it's controversial to talk about climate refugees. A lot of people don't like being called that. Fair enough. But the impact that this disproportionate climate change impact has on people who are then unable to live where they want to live because their ecosystem is uninhabitable. And then they need to go somewhere else. And we have the power to shut our borders to them or push them to another country and say, you're not our problem. And we lose that connection to each other as human beings. And that othering narrative has become so apparent in the past few years right now, apparently. Yeah, I'm just... You just said something that I'd never seen before until this moment, because I've always thought of discomfort practice as cognitive. I feel discomfort between some of my beliefs or in a relationship or in an inconsistent triad of relationships, mm. famous example of cognitive dissonance. But you just said, if we cut back from our current carbon footprint of 37 and begin to live in a more sustainable way, 
it creates discomfort, but you meant literal discomfort. Yeah. Like, Somatic so I don't use lifestyle. air conditioners, for, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And so I gave back my school's air conditioner. That's literal discomfort. Yeah. Right. I require myself to just use a bicycle around town. And when it's super hot or raining, that's literal discomfort. I never thought of that literal discomfort as part and parcel with the discomfort practice in other areas. Oh, wow. But you link them together into a single sentence. Yeah, it absolutely for me is like, duh. <laughs> okay, you can keep that one, Philip. You can keep that one. Yeah, because to me it is, uh, because I do so much work on behavior change, it's so obvious to me that, yeah, I'm going to have to be willing to be hotter in the summer because I don't use air conditioning, maybe be a little bit colder in the winter because I don't use heating, maybe be less comfortable about my options and my freedom because I'm choosing not to fly anymore for work. You know, I am going to have to have uncomfortable conversations with people who want to hire me and I will not come to where they are in another country. They're going to have to do it all virtually. We have to be willing to live in smaller houses or more ecological houses. We have to be willing to buy fewer clothes and maybe buy only stuff that's seasonal so we waste less food. That You know, this is, it's holistic and it's our responsibility. And it's so easy to ignore that because comfort is nice. Comfort is comfort. And we are hardwired to avoid discomfort. But no, this is something I'm pretty radical about and pretty passionate about, which is we all have to be willing to get uncomfortable and to practice discomfort in our lifestyles if we want to not fail together because this is collective and you can only push the consequences for this onto other cultures and places and locations so long. And obviously we're starting to see these things really come home. I mean, a lot of Americans are now very aware that climate change has caused wildfires, hotter summers. You know, they're not necessarily linking it yet to more fatalities or, you know, old people are being impacted by the extreme weather or whatever. Maybe this pandemic we've gone through has helped people to connect that we're all connected a little bit more, but you can only avoid it for so long with climate change. And eventually when you're the only ones left not suffering from it, it's coming for you too. I don't want to sound fatalistic because I also do believe that I don't want to peddle a doom narrative, but we need to get uncomfortable with the fact that it's not getting better unless we practice collective discomfort and are willing to live less comfortably to truly create change. We can't just talk about it and we can't just do our recycling. It's just not bloody good enough. That leads me to see two things I hadn't seen as clearly before. The one is that the discomfort practice emphatically, I think you're saying, includes physical discomfort as well. Yeah. That was the first. And the second one is to modify something I'd said before. There must be, I wonder if you've done this already, the hierarchy of uh, steps in the discomfort practice or mm. one after the other steps in the discomfort practice. There's awareness of discomfort, mm -hmm. right? Then there's a sort of focus of attention on the discomfort. And then thirdly is sitting with the discomfort. And that I mentioned in a Buddhist context a few minutes ago. And the fourth would be to lean into the discomfort, mm -hmm. to lean into it. To say that I actually, and I don't mean this in a martyr way or a um, neurotic way. I mean, in the way that one leads in extended meditation uh, retreats, you yeah. know, you lean into that physical discomfort. Sitting on your butt for so many hours is sore and mm -hmm. there are cramps and so forth. But those of us who do it believe that there's something very valuable in advanced meditation practices. What about advanced discomfort practices in a healthy spiritual way, leaning into the discomfort? Is that a thing? 
Well, you should come to my yin yoga class on Wednesday nights in Barcelona because that's exactly what we do. And that's the sequence. It's sort of like become aware of the discomfort that you're in right now as you lie in this position that is opening your hip flexors and you're going to stay here for a couple more minutes. So try to relax your hands so you're not white knuckling it or counting those last 10 breaths I just told you we were going to take. Like focus on the discomfort and then sit in it. And then when you notice your edge starting to shift, find a new one because that's where the magic happens. So that's precisely what yin yoga is all about, or at least the way I choose to teach it. And it's people get it. I don't necessarily have to explain it to people as this is your life, by the way, you know, this is you in conflict at work. This is you with chronic anxiety in your life. This is you expanding your comfort zone, but you first have to go to the edge of your comfort zone and feel really uncomfortable first. Get aware mm. of it and then consciously choose not to back away from it, not to distract yourself. Cause I sort of will be in some, you know, pigeon pose for five minutes and I watch toward the end and I can tell the people who've practiced a lot because they're just like, they're in it. They're there. They're practicing stillness. They're practicing discomfort. And, and then I see the people who might be newer to the practice or maybe who had a, kind of a crappy day. And it's just like your capacity for discomfort's lower. And I watch them twitch. I watch them like wiggle their fingers and, and I can tell that they're clenching their jaw and they're wondering when this is going to be over. Yeah. But I, okay. So it's probably obvious by now that discomfort is the passion of my life right now. And it's something yeah. I study in everything I do, whether it's teaching yoga or teaching leadership to undergrads or doing a corporate workshop on giving feedback, but that's absolutely what I'm saying. And that the practice of discomfort is psychological, it's somatic, it leads to a change in behavior, it leads to complete change in consciousness. So, you know, maybe we can like, go around the discussion of, you know, what divides religions and they're just like, hmm, what's the capacity of various religions to help people experience, live with, and find even joy in discomfort because hmm. once you kind of get used to it and I thank my background of sports for teaching me this early because of course you don't want to go to training you don't want to go to practice several times a week you don't want to have to do extra training but you do it because it makes you a better athlete it helps you to perform better it helps you to win and mm -hmm. so you know learning at the age of like six when I started playing soccer that discomfort's actually just it's the name of the game if you want to mm -hmm. be a winner you practice discomfort. You do things yeah. you don't necessarily want to do. I'm so glad sports came up because that, <laughs> I, and it probably has often come up on your podcast. But so I'm a cyclist, and uh, there's a climb out of LA, which is 23 mile climb from Glendora up to uh, Mount Baldy Village, um, and really one of the nicest rides in all of the Southern California area. And I will often do that early in the morning. I remember coming around a corner and seeing the the snow on the mountains in the distance. But it is, it is a space, I compare that to sitting meditation, because after you know 10,000 cycles of your legs and um, your heart pumping, your legs screaming at you, there is a place it takes you that is hard to describe, but it is, there's no other way to get there, I'll just say, other than, than pushing your body up that mountain. Hmm. I'm a national soccer referee, and on Saturday morning at 8 a.m., I'll be out in a field with 22 19-year-olds, so advanced players. And what happens is you see people hit that wall and push into it. And then you see some of the greatest sports, athletic soccer moves ever, mm -hmm. where somebody will push past that pain point, dribble past three other players who are also very gifted and get a shot off into that upper right-hand corner of the bar. And you realize there's something about that process. Yeah. That, that's what makes sports so glorious. Yeah. That ability to rise through 
and beyond the pain of 90 minutes of sprinting, right? And then to be able to find that extra little thing in the last minutes of a match. There's always more. And that's why I actually am quite an optimist about the climate crisis, because it's, you see people hit rock bottom and then find out that wasn't really the bottom, but they still have the resilience to keep going and the creativity and the innovation to make something out of it. And I think collectively, we're kind of headed toward rock bottom and it can get a lot worse in case anybody was wondering. But it's from those rock bottom moments that, you know, you rise because we have to. So Mm -hmm. that's part of why I'm optimistic. I don't really find the idea. I get quite cheerful, actually, about the idea that we're heading toward rock bottom. Like, oh, thank God, finally, people will have to wake up because it's only when you hit bottom that you realize you can't continue as you have. You have to reinvent. Mm -hmm. You have to get help. You have to go to AA or whatever. Mm -hmm. We collectively need to get there and be like, well, we we can't possibly keep functioning the way we have. We literally can't. So... What are we going to do differently? How are we going to mm-hmm. overhaul our approach? And I think we're headed there sooner rather than later. Yeah. Your words and the sports analogy take me to a thought that I haven't explored before, and I'd be interested in where it would take you. It's about nations and the history mm-hmm. of humanity as a whole. So my spiritual home is India. And for many uh, of the writers through the centuries and for many of the spiritual leaders of the last 150 years, the suffering of the subcontinent has played a crucial role in the spiritual insights that they bring. Second example, Russia, Solzhenitsyn, one of the greatest Russian authors, um, novelists of the later, latter half of the 20th century, gave the Harvard commencement address in 1978. And he said that the spiritual depth that Russia has achieved over the years since 1917, or I think he said over the last hundred years, have a lot to do with the suffering that Russians have gone through. Mm. And out of that, as a byproduct, has come a spiritual depth. My question is, could it be that the change in our climate, that we have made our beautiful planet far less inhabitable than it was before the industrial era? And especially in the last decades, we have like exponentially grown that damage with results that science tells us will be hundreds and in some cases thousands of Mm -hmm. years before they completely pass and the planet reachieves its own homeostasis. Could it be that this period we are heading into is a period of deepening spiritual insight and awareness based on the suffering that if not we, then our children and their children will face? Might that be like the crucible in which our growth as a species, our insight, our spiritual depth is gained? I love that thought. And of course, I'm going to agree because I believe, and you believe, I I think, that suffering isn't to be avoided. It's actually where the beauty comes from, the broken moments, and that depth is the flip side of suffering. And I totally, I love that Solzhenitsyn quote. I love Solzhenitsyn. He was a big element of my nerdy high school years. (laughs) I was homeschooled. We read a lot of good books. But yeah, absolutely. I do think that Yeah, the presence of suffering brings depth because you can't just live in the fluffy, easy, you know, sort of televised version of life and that suffering makes things a lot more real faster. And then also I think you realize the value of humans, you know, and I think it can go two ways, probably. We see the rise of populism as people react in fear and scrabble to protect themselves and their resources because they believe that people will take them if they don't protect them. But then the other side is I do think there is a growing consciousness of connection 
of desire to connect, of not an exhaustion with living in the fear of other humans and the resource scarcity. So I think we'll probably see people going two directions. And it's just about who's ready for the journey and who's who's not. Mm. That sort of circles us back around to the religion and science theme, mm. because religion offers a potential point of connection across vastly disparate cultures. Mm. In the common focus on compassion, the golden rule, you know, putting your neighbor before yourself means not getting something for yourself that you might otherwise want. I wonder whether, well, it's often said by uh, the religious teachers that not centering life on my wishes and desires and wants, but rather on the needs of those around me is the essence of the path that this Buddhist or Mm. Taoist or Confucian Christian, Jewish, Muslim teacher offers. Yeah. And that combines, so the not focus on self, but the other, the golden rule, the not focus on my culture or group, but the good of the whole, the thriving of all sentient beings, Mm. those calls. So it's a call to to suffer, not having wants met. That's the first. Mm. It's a call to recognize the interconnection the interdependence, the interbeing of Thich of all living things. And then it is the recognition through science that this is actually how the biosphere works. That when a species has taken more than its role and upset the homeostasis, that Gaia, the planet as a whole, readjusts mm. to bring things back into balance. Well, it's not easy to have your limbs trimmed or your lifestyle trimmed. But maybe that's what science, where science and religion are most converging, the need to have our limbs as a species trimmed until we regain the place that we need to play Mm. within the planetary ecosystem as a whole. Oh, I love how that circled background and you, you tied it so beautifully together, Philip. I have so enjoyed this conversation. I have so many more things I want to talk to you about that I just need you to come back and be a guest again. (laughs) Maybe we can focus on um, different religions and what they bring to this view and this interconnectedness and this discomfort that we need to collectively experience to save the world together. But I love that this is focused on quite naturally. I think this is probably both of us very... We've avoided the divisiveness quite neatly. I asked some some questions that could have gone there, and I like that you brought it back to togetherness and common ground and how we actually do align across religions and how science and religion can beautifully complement each other. So I just want to thank you for your skill and your scholarship and your beautiful way of holding a conversation. Thank Mm. you. It takes two to hold a conversation. So I think that we achieve that together. And I, I do think that the calling now is to find ways to collaborate. I work 50, 60 hours a week for ecosiv.org because I think that building public-private partnerships, partnerships with business leaders, with nonprofit leaders, with UN, UNESCO, and others, that's the path. Mm. Um, you know, when, when um, Cape Town was in facing day zero water crisis, we brought together leaders from six different sectors to talk about what long-term solutions would look like. Mm. And that is doing in action what you and I have just done in dialogue. So Mm. thank you so much. Thank you so much. Betsy, for making it all possible. Yeah. Well, I will put all of your information in the show notes because people really need to check out Ecosiv as well as Reboot the Future. They're doing beautiful work. And of of note, Kim Pullman is the wife of 
Paul Pullman, who for years was the CEO of Unilever, which is one of the world's biggest fast-moving consumer goods companies. So they make a lot of brands, you know, and he's done so much good as a corporate leader and brought a lot of attention to how businesses can be net positive. He's just publishing a new book called Net Positive. I was at his online workshop, well, book launch thing on Monday. And it's just a really interesting vision for how corporates, business in the world can be a real engine for change. So I think the message I'd like to leave everybody with here, summing it up is we can all be part of a movement. We can all be part of creating change and it might mean getting uncomfortable. So explore the discomfort. Don't be afraid of it. In fact, make it a little game and see how that can help you to connect with others, connect with our interbeing and create a better world for everyone. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. Thank you.